So I'd ask you to take God's Word in your hands and uh, turn to the book of Exodus this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can find the book of Exodus in the second book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, of course, being first, and the book of Exodus. And we have been studying, we've taken a bit of a, a short hiatus from our study of the Ten Commandments. Of course, last week we were blessed by one of our missionaries, uh, Ben Hatton, uh, who uh, shared uh, from the book of Hebrews. And uh, then uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we took a, a week off for uh, uh, the opportunity to uh, uh, teach uh, a message to our, our friends and families who came for VBS Sunday. And so we pick it back up, and uh, we find ourselves in commandment number four. Now, we've taken care of commandment one, two, and three. And then John Pilkington, a couple of weeks ago, because he was too afraid to preach on the Sabbath, took honor mother and father, and I'll just leave that to you, that he was afraid. Is he here today? John, I'm glad to see you're here this morning. And so he took care of, and I appreciate it, did a great job uh, preaching, uh, commandment number five. So we're doing a little bit of a rewind, and then the rest of August and the first uh, week of September, we'll be addressing the last of the commandments. And so we're going to pick it up uh, in commandment uh, number four this morning, one that has great controversy, one that has great struggle, uh, both within the church and outside of the church. And so we need to, uh, in many ways, put on our thinking caps this morning. And uh, there's no way I'm going to be able to address everything with regards to this uh, incredible subject matter, but I hope that our time will be beneficial and that it will spur on more thoughts and more discussions as we move forward. I have no doubt in my mind that I'm not the only person watching the Olympics that are going on in London. Let me rephrase that. I'm not the only one who's watching the swimming and the gymnastics that are going on in London. I was a shot putter and a discus thrower in high school, and uh, I am blown away that we are so enthralled with swimming and gymnastics. Anybody else with me on that? I mean, let's move on to some Olympic events. I mean, my goodness, swimming around in a swimming pool and wearing clothes that men should never wear. Um, <laughs> let's get on to some of the more manly events. I've seen Michael Phelps do 1,500 variations of the same thing, that is playing Marco Polo in the pool. And yet, amidst all of that and all of my struggle with what is going on with the Olympics, you have to just really look, look at it and say, what an amazing time it is. Every four years to watch the best of the best athletes come together, those who have trained, young men and women who have trained an entire lifetime to have the opportunity to use that gift and that natural ability and that hard work for the opportunity to race against the best, to uh, participate in an event against the best in the world for the one chance to stand on the medal stand and to be able to receive a medal that signifies that once and for all you were amongst the best in that event. Now I want you to think about the stories that we've heard. That's the greatest part of the Olympic uh, time is not just the athleticism that we see, but it's the stories of real people of people, you see the moms and dads in the crowd who are just normal, everyday people. And you hear about athletes who've endured loss of family and friends. You've heard of them losing out on opportunities so that they could train and prepare for that moment. Now think after all that training and all that work, getting ready for that moment, just to arrive at the Olympics and not participate the letdown that would take place, the feeling of missing out on your calling would no doubt fill our minds. After all of that training, all of that hard work to only arrive at the Olympics and not to be a part of the event you wanted to be. Well, that happened in 1924. A Scottish sprinter named Eric Little, many of you may know that name, had his best opportunities to uh, win the gold medal in the 100-yard dash. He was a world-renowned sprinter, and he had trained all his life for that one race. And he would arrive, in fact, he, on his way uh, to the Olympics uh, by boat, he would learn something that would devastate his heart, that would take away all the hopes and opportunities to be once and for all crowned as the greatest sprinter in the human world. He would find out that the date of the preliminary 
heat, that which would have to take place before he would ever have an opportunity to win a gold medal, would take place on Sunday. As a devout Christian, Little would make a conviction decision. I am unable to run the race, he would say, because it falls on the day that is dedicated to my Lord. And as a result of his conviction to the fourth commandment, it would keep him from doing the very thing that he longed to do. Now, that wouldn't be the end that we would hear of Little. Little made the decision. While there were two opening spots still left for him to compete in the preliminaries of two other races, not his best. In fact, one of the races, the 400-yard dash, would be a race that he had never run before. And with the blessing of God, he says, he would run with God's pleasure upon him. He would go on to win the 400-yard dash, receiving the gold medal, and then a bronze at the 1924 Olympics in the 200-yard dash. What a conviction. His conviction would be made known, not just at the Olympics in 1924, but if you follow any kind of a movie history, no doubt the a theme song of a, of a movie that would chronicle his life and story would be known as Chariots of Fire. An Academy Award winning a movie that would remind the world of one man's conviction with regards to the fourth commandment. And without giving any disrespect to him, I ask the question, was Eric Little right? And if he was right, are we wrong? You see, Eric Little can't just be right and see that it's important that we don't do anything else but honor and worship and uh, give God all the glory and praise on the Sabbath and then look at our lives and say, with all of our activities and all our thoughts, that we can be right as well. And so how are we to navigate through this issue of the Ten Commandments, especially with regards to the fourth one? We're going to log some heavy miles this morning. And I want you not to worry, because usually our custom here is to celebrate the Lord's Supper before I come up and preach. And we will be doing that at the end of the service, because I believe that after we're all said and done, we will truly understand what... God's law on the Sabbath was all about for us as believers. Now, this fourth commandment is one that we misrepresent. It's one that we misunderstand. It is one that many times we push off to the wayside. This morning, my nine-year-old son didn't want to get up for church. And so I said, son, we have to head to church. It's time to go. And he's in the room, and I'm sure he's getting a little embarrassed right now. His response was, dad isn't Sunday, a day of rest? Where does he get that? It must come from his mother. But, but we for a long time have ordered our understanding of Sunday and Saturday and the Sabbath or not the Sabbath based on what seemingly, and I say this of my own self, and I'm as guilty as my nine-year-old son, based on what we want it to be on what it will work out for us best to do. And so in our study of the Ten Commandments, we've understood some rules, and there's a rule that's going to be very important with regards to the Fourth Commandment. In that first study, we looked at the rules of how to interpret the Ten Commandments. How are we able to understand them? And the first, one of the first rules we learned about was what we call the biblical rule. And that means the Ten Commandments have to be interpreted not just according to Exodus chapter 20, but they have to be interpreted in light of all other scripture. And so what you're going to see us do is we're going to pinpoint what the uh, book of Exodus says, excuse me, on the Ten Commandments, and then we're going to open up the camera lens to try to understand what does all of scripture say. What does Jesus say with regards to the Sabbath? What does Paul say with regards to the Sabbath? And hopefully, we're going to be able to navigate through this in a way that maybe some of us have never done before. And so that's what our goal is. That's what our aim is. I pray that my words will be clear to you. So let us stand for the reading of God's Word, and let us understand what God's Word has to say with regards to this command. Exodus chapter 20, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it 
You shall not do any work, neither you nor your daughter or a son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, we need your spirit this morning in a way uh, that probably is needed more than, than many other passages that we look at. Because this is one, Lord, where there's great question, there's great discussion, or there's great debate, and sadly, Lord, there's great division. And so, Lord, we want to know here as Christians, as those who follow you, we want to know what your will is with regards to this. We want to know the way that will lead us to blessing. We want to know the way that will lead us to Christ-likeness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning. Father, I pray through my study and my time that what I bring before us will not only instruct us well, but it will lead us to look to ourselves and ask some hard questions as I've had to ask myself this week so that I may live in accordance to your will. Father, we thank you for your word that we have so that we may know what your revealed plan is for us. And we thank you for Christ who has given us the salvation that we need that we can truly rest in him and him alone. We thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The subject matter this morning is quite easy. The Sabbath, a study of the Sabbath, and the question is, is it a holiday or is it a holy day? Now, as we look at that, under that heading this morning, under the text that we've just read, there are six things that I want to look at. Now, I usually don't overwhelm you with that many points, and there's a lot of points. And here's what I want you to know. There are six points, and when we get to point number seven, I'm going to rest because it will be a Sabbath for me. Okay, that was supposed to get more laughter, and it didn't, so I'll leave it there. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, and that's why it's good you're here this morning. But we need to understand what we are to do as Christians with regards to the Sabbath. The first thing we need to understand is that we must identify the purpose of this Sabbath. What's the reason for the Sabbath? Why is it that God cares about how people use their time? Why does he involve himself in that detail of our lives? Well, we learned a year ago, almost a full year ago, when we talked about the issue of stewardship, that God, the Trinity, longs not to just be God of some parts of our life, but all of it. We learned a great quote by Abraham Kuyper that says there's not one square inch of all of creation, which time is a part of, there's not one square inch of all of creation that Jesus doesn't cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. Brothers and sisters, let me contend with you this morning that your weekend is not your own. My weekend is not my own. My time is not my own. Just as my body is the Lord's, just as my mind is the Lord's, just as my family is the Lord's, my time and how I use it is the Lord's. And Jesus cries out to Timbadol and he says, your time belongs to me. It is mine. And if you don't get that, as I struggled throughout my life to get, you're not going to understand what God is trying to accomplish. It is his, all of his, his, all of you and I are his, and he is our God and our king. Solomon reminds us that because God owns everything, that God has put a pattern together of how life is to be lived. Solomon says that there's a season for everything, a time to work, a time to rest, a time to live, a time to die, a time to laugh, and a time to cry. And that was Solomon, not a 60s rock band that said that. And so we see that God, within his incredible sovereignty, gave a pattern to the nation of Israel that needed to be followed. Six days of work, and on the seventh, you rest. There's a rhythm to it. Six, one off. Six on, one off. And it was given to the people of Israel as a sign to the covenant that they had with their God. 
But I want you to notice within the text, look at verses uh, 8. It says, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But on the seventh it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now notice what he says. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. It was comprehensive. What it meant was, hey guys, you can take a day off, but the women, they have to work. Or, or parents, go ahead and take a day off and the kids will do the work. This wasn't what was being talked about. The entire nation was given the right to work and do as it needed to, to take care of its needs and its service to others in six days. And on the seventh day, God said, I want that day to be set apart for me. But it's not just for you. It is for the people within your family, your sons and daughters. It is for you employers, but it's also for your employees. Think about this. This is the first, if you will, work condition bill of rights that was given. Think about the people that were working in the nation of Israel, and the guy comes in and he says, oh, by the way, my God said you've got to have a day off. I'm sure that God got a lot more popular in the working class of people. That's a great God. That my boss now, because of his commitment to that God, will now give me some time off. But it doesn't just involve people. It involved animals, your livestock, your oxen. And we learn in another passage of Scripture that it involved your fields. That at times your field was to be given a Sabbath rest. Now, why would he do all of this? God does this because he's ordering his covenant people in a way that would remind them that he is in charge, that he is in charge. And so the Sabbath was a, be a picture that, number one, God is the one in authority. God is the one who dictates where we go and what we do and how we do it. Now notice there's a couple things with regards to this. First of all, the Sabbath was for resting. It was for resting. The word Sabbath literally means to cease or to be at rest. Now before we get too far to the resting part, understand what is implied within the idea of resting. First of all, if there is a time to cease that which we are doing, we have to understand what God is saying we are to do. And what we are called to do is six days we are called to work. For some of you, you look at your work, your job, the, the, the active duty you have as a human being, whether you get paid for it or not, as a drudgery. And your simple response is this must be from the curse. Can I tell you that before sin entered the world, God commanded our first parents, Adam and Eve, to work in the garden. We were created to work before sin entered the world. God has called each and every one of us to use our natural abilities, our natural strengths, all of that to find work that we can not only provide for our families, but also to serve our society as a whole. And quite frankly, what would we do with our days if we didn't work? What talk about a messed up society we would be if we just got up and said, what are we going to do today? And so God says, I want you working. But notice, he doesn't create robots. He doesn't create people that just are going to work all the time. And we see that natural rhythm in life. Some years ago, when I was a young man, I prided myself on how little sleep I could go on. And can I tell you something? You can't fight sleep. You can get away with it for a day, and maybe another day and a half, and, and, but around that 48 hours, and I can tell you, I've tried to do it, about 48 hours, they'll kill you if you don't sleep, the people around you. <laughs> so they'll force you to go down one way or another, and the reason why is we were not created to just go, go, and go. And so what our bodies tell us, and there's variations, of course, but I can assure you that all of us got a minimum of five hours of sleep yesterday, and for some of you teenagers, 18 hours of sleep, and you need that. Well, not the 18 hours, but you need a portion of sleep. And the reason why is God has created us with bodies that work and bodies that need to rest. 
Now God adds that component to that rhythm, and he says to the Israelites, there's a day of resting. Now I want to make this abundantly clear, because we get this in our mind, and I hear this, and it's what my son said today, that isn't Sunday a day of rest? It means I should be able to sleep in, I should be able to have a big breakfast, and I should be able just to take it easy. Now, I'm not going to ask you who has that feeling, but I can assure you the vast majority of us, because I've heard it, when I say, hey, can you serve on Sunday? You know, Sunday is to be a day of rest. I want you to look back at Genesis, and I want you to get in your mind the God of all eternity has just created the world and everything in it in six days. And then on that seventh, he puts on his sleeping cap, he grabs his blankie, and he lays down and puts his head to the pillow, and he says, Israelites, this is what I want you to do. Take a long nap. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says our God does not tire or grow weary. The God, our God does not sleep. And so if you get this idea that resting is, 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 is you sitting in front of a TV because it's your day of rest, you're wrong. And you can be offended by that all you want. It ain't in the text. This is not what God is talking about. We're going to understand here in a moment what it is. We understand that this idea of rest is resting from what you did the other six days. You see, what God did is he ceased his creative work so that he could glory in what he created. That's the rest that's going on. God was busy, he's creating, there was light, and then the darkness, and, and there was uh, water, and dry land, and there were animals, and creeping things, and then he made man, and he made woman, and he creates all these things in days one through six. And he says, it is good. And he sits back on his throne, and he says, I am the great God, the only God, and I marvel in the works of my hands. And angels, myriads of angels upon myriads of angels proclaimed and worshiped the greatness of our God in heaven. And he sat back and he rejoiced in who he was. No nap, no big breakfast. He rejoiced in what he had created. Now notice it goes on and he says that it's a time of remembering. So there's a resting and we're gonna understand what that means in a couple moments. Rest was a part of God's plan, resting from what we did the rest of the week. But remembering was important as well. There are two memories that are pointed out with regards to the Sabbath. First of all, it's the creation one. Notice what he says. He says, okay, I want you to remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Why? Notice verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh. And so the Israelites need to be reminded that God is the creator God, that he is the one that did all of this. And, and I think that's important because we work and work and work, and we get into this mind, look how great I am. Look how awesome I am. We look back at our week and we say, I'm a productive guy. I'm an amazing individual. Look at all the people that I oversee. Look at all the, the money that transfers through my hand. Look at all of the technology that I've created. And God says, if you think that's great, don't forget I'm the one who created everything out of nothing. You created out of what I gave you. I'm telling you I created out of nothing. Out of the word of my mouth came the universe and all that's in it. And so God is reminding these people, don't forget who I am. Now, also understand within this remembering, turn for a moment to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you're in the book of Exodus, just go a couple books over. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Moses once again reiterates the Ten Commandments. And it's not a carbon copy of them. There are some differences, but before you get scared away from it, understand that none of it changes what the Ten Commandments are all about. The 99.9% the, the .9 of what is in the book of Exodus is there in Deuteronomy. Now, I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter uh, 5, verses uh, 12. Verse 12 there. We'll go through 15. It says, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant, maidservant, nor your ox or donkey or any other animals, 
nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Now, he goes on in verse 15, something that's not in the book of Exodus. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And then he uses the word therefore. And we ask when we see the word therefore, we say what? What is it there for? Why do we need to celebrate the Sabbath as God has commanded at the end of verse 15? Because God rescued them out of Egypt. Now what does that mean? There's a couple of things that we need to understand. First of all, God is reminding them that he alone is the reason for their freedom. He alone is the one who set them free. And so when God says, I want a day set aside for me, they can't go, but come on, God. Why are you doing that? God says, hey, you would be back in Egypt working seven days a week, 24 hours a day, with a hard and cruel taskmaster, and all I'm asking for, the one who redeemed you, who rescued you, is I'm asking for a day to be set apart to be holy unto me. And he says, secondly, I'm not a wicked and mean ruler. Think about it for a moment. God could have said, I want six days, and you can have one day to yourself. Have you ever thought about that? That God could have said, hey, do all your work in one day and give me the six. God is a good God. God is a compassionate God who gives us one day where it's set apart to him and he says the rest of the week you can do as you need to. It's very similar as as Keith said with regards to the tithe. God could have asked for 90%. He could have asked for all of it, but he doesn't. The final thing that we need to see is that it's a thing of renewal. Go back to Exodus chapter 20, and we see that they are to keep it holy, that it's to be set apart, it is to be sanctified, it is to be set as a day distinct from all other days within Israel's life and history. God was telling the Israelites, yes, it was a time of rest, rest from the activities of an already filled week. And so now that Sabbath, that Saturday, was to be used for something different. Moses tells us, write this passage down, Leviticus 23.3, that the Sabbath was a day that was to be given to sacred assembly. What that means is it was a day not of inactivity, but a day of different activity than the rest of the week. And so the Israelites would gather. They would come from far and wide to gather together as a company of people and pay attention to the things of God praising him and remembering that he is the God of creation and being reminded that he is not only a God of creation, but he's the God of redemption, that he redeemed his people out of Egypt. And they were to praise him for his goodness and his forgiveness and his long-suffering. It was to be a day like no other. And so we see the Sabbath was to rest and remember and renew. Now let's move on. The second thing we need to see is that we need to examine the practice Once we understand the purpose for it, we have to see how it's fleshed out throughout time. And we're not going to take a lot of time in each of these, and you can look at them yourself. But notice with me for a moment that, first of all, the Sabbath was exhibited. It was exhibited at creation. Long before the Ten Commandments ever come around, we know that God worked six and rested on one. Now, it wasn't called the Sabbath then. Nowhere in Genesis will you see that God says, here's the Sabbath. This is what I did. But we see the pattern is there. The rhythm of God must also be the rhythm of man. And so we see this, that long before the two tablets were ever written on, that it was a part of the heart and mindset of God. And that's true of all of the commandments. We talked about that. Nowhere in the book of Genesis does it say that murder is wrong. But you know what? Cain knew it. Cain knew it the moment he murdered his brother. Because the law of the Lord was written on their hearts. And so we have to understand, first of all, it was exhibited at creation. What that means is the Sabbath wasn't some new idea. But it was one that had gone back to the beginning of human history. And so we need to understand that and that will have bearings on what we do with it um, after it seems the law is fulfilled in Christ. Number two, it's expected, it was expected to be accomplished before the commandments. Where did the Sabbath come from? We don't know because the first time that the word Sabbath is brought out is in Exodus chapter 16, verse 21, when the Israelites are just out of Egypt. They start receiving this wonderful gift called manna from heaven. 
and God says you're going to get manna every day for six days and, on the, and you can't keep it. Can't keep it. You can't store it up because I'm going to be your provider and you're going to count on my faithfulness to take care of you. And every day that manna is going to come down from heaven. And on the sixth day, I want you to pick up two times what you normally do. And it's not going to go bad. It's not going to be filled with maggots in 24 hours because what you're going to eat is the stuff you collected on Friday you'll be able to eat on Saturday. And he says the reason why is because the Sabbath is a day that God has set apart. So here we have this practice called the Sabbath. We don't exactly know when it came into existence, when Moses or God or one of the patriarchs announced this is the Sabbath, this is when it's going to happen. But we know that it is there and it's a part of Israel's history for 1,400 years. The prophets would talk about it over and over again, telling people not to defile the Sabbath, telling people not to misuse the Sabbath. And by the time of Jesus' life on earth, the Sabbath is now far from its intended purposes and plans. It's been bogged down at Jesus' time by all types of rules and regulations. And i got to be honest with you, some of them were totally idiotic. The Talmud, which is a, a set of rabbinical writings, devoted, I'll get the number right here, 24 chapters. 24 chapters, hundreds of pages regarding what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. You say, what do some of those look like? One of the ones that I like the most is you cannot swat a bug from your arm. The bug comes on, the, on any other day, kill it. On the Sabbath, it lands, it's going to bite you, you know it, you're watching it, but you have to let it do its work because if you swat at it, it's work, and you're not to work on the Sabbath. Now, is that in the Bible? No, that's not in the Bible, but that was in their writings. And then they took, after the 24 chapters of what you couldn't do, they wrote five chapters on what the penalty would be if you swatted the fly. They were hell-bent on seeing this Sabbath rule stay into effect, that when Jesus does some of his greatest work on the Sabbath, especially in healing a woman, the response of the Pharisees is, she has six other days to be healed. Don't heal her on the Sabbath. And they've just watched a woman be completely healed. And their issue is you did it on the wrong day. And so we see that this practice is falling apart. But here's the amazing thing. It was still endorsed by Christ. It was still endorsed by Christ. Write this passage down. I've got to keep going here. But Luke 4.16 tells us that Christ would go into the temple... And he would worship in the temple on the Sabbath. And in that text it says, as was his custom. Jesus held to the Sabbath. Not to the garbage Sabbath. And we learn that with all the controversy that comes. The garbage of the Sabbath that the Pharisees and the chief priests had added to it. But he saw it as a time to gather with God's covenant people. A time to worship. To lift high the word of God from the law and the prophets. And to proclaim the goodness of his father. And to proclaim the truth to all who are in his presence. We see also it was engaged by the early Christians. We're going to see, if you look back at the story of Christ's resurrection, that the women uh, hurry to do work so that they will be able to take the Sabbath day off when Christ is being buried. We see that the disciples in the book of Acts are still entering into the synagogues. Day and night they entered into the temple courts. Well, what would happen in the temple courts... On the day of the Sabbath, seemingly the Christians didn't say, we're opting out. They were a part of that time. It says that Paul, over and over again, would be in the synagogues and places of worship. And what we see later on in his ministry, that he used that opportunity to proselytize, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those who were around. And so we have this practice that's going on. And so we as Christians got to figure this out because it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing as well. Now, I will add that the Sabbath seems to take a smaller role later as the New Testament continues to go on. And we're going to get to that here because we need to understand then the problems. The problems. I want to spend again a lot of time here. But what is called the cause the discon disconnect? All the other commands in the Bible are easy for us to say, don't do. I don't have any problem saying, don't murder. Because Moses said it. And Jesus, he says it even more. You, you murder in your heart. 
it's just as bad as killing somebody in the flesh. It's easy to say do not commit adultery because Jesus says later on, it's not just committing adultery with your body, but if you think upon a woman in a wrong way, you're committing adultery as well. And so we need to understand there's some problems with our understanding of the Sabbath as we look at the scriptures in its totality. The first problem is, it is the only commandment that is never repeated in the New Testament. Nowhere do we see, hey, all Christians, listen up. Everybody pay attention. Here are the rules of the new ball game. We started this new faith called Christianity. And by the way, still remember the Sabbath. It ain't there. And so we have to recognize that. If it was so important, if it was so crucial to our worship, if God's going to get angry about it, you would have thought that somewhere in the New Testament someone would have said something. In fact, they say the opposite, but we'll get there. Number two, we see the problem is, is that the church worships on the day of the resurrection. The early church, very quickly after the resurrection, moves its time of worship from Saturday's Sabbath to the Lord's Day, which is Sunday. And so if it was so important for us to follow the Sabbath principle of the Israelites, then why wouldn't we just keep the Saturday being the day? Well, obviously something shifted and moved them to worshiping on Sunday. And it was endorsed, of course, by the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit who speaks to that truth. And that takes place. Number three, we have to understand that Christ seems to reorder the Sabbath. And what I mean by reorder isn't he didn't change it, but he brought it back in order, if you will. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Christ makes an amazing claim after the Pharisees catch his disciples uh, breaking up wheat and barley in their hands to eat something on the Sabbath. Remember, they're walking by a field. We learned this in our gospel study of Mark. And they were hungry, and they grabbed some of the, the pods of grain off of the stalk. They will, winnowed it, if winnowed it with their hands, I had to think about that for a moment, and broke apart and ate it. Kind of like sunflower seeds. Grab them, you know, eat them, throw away the sides that you're not going to eat. And they eat them, and the Pharisees see it, and they're indignant. They can't believe they've done it. And Jesus makes a statement that would have thrown the Pharisees, and I tell you, this is the point where they're like, we're going to kill them. Because he makes a statement in Mark 2.27 that Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. When Jesus makes a, a, a declaration like that, we've got to sit up and say, wait a minute. It isn't business as usual. And so we need to understand that. Does that mean we just throw everything away? No. He doesn't say that Sabbath is bad. He just says it's man isn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. The final thing that we need to understand is that culture has redefined it. And so one of the problems we have is studying uh, the Sabbath is our culture is so far away from where the Old Testament principle and law was that, that to even try to navigate to that, we got to go through so much garbage and minutia of our 21st century lives that it's nearly impossible for us to get through. And I'll, I'll give a quote to you by a man named Alexis McCrossan who reminds us of this truth. He says, the polling data tells us overwhelmingly that Americans are, in a, are a religious people. The large majority of them attending church, they believe in God and they pray often. But you wouldn't know it from a typical Sunday where malls are hopping, movie theaters are packed, and roads are clogged with cars and bikes of people going to and fro to their activities. Though we might still possibly remember the Sabbath day in the land of perpetual fun, we surely do not keep it holy. Americans went from viewing Sunday as a day of holy rest and religious activity to a day of cultural enlightenment to one of mindless consumption and amusement. Christians have seen it as their intention, not as a day to be offered to the Lord, but to a day filled with goofing off, playing games, and seeking out the best bargains. I think he's right. And I think he's right because he's talking about me. Simply put, Christians, we don't care about what God says with regards to the Sabbath because it would ruin our lives if we really started to ask God, what do you require of me with regards to this? What are you saying to me? And so we just say, you know what, Sabbath, it's Old Testament. We're New Testament Christians, and, and let's just throw the baby out with the proverbial bathwater, and let's just move on because it is going to be far too hard for me to reorder my life to get it to be what Christ called it to be. And so I say, and I want to make this clear, I'm as guilty as anybody. I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm the one that's in the corner 
who got kicked out of the choir, knowing that I fail at this all the time. So let's look at another point. We've got to recognize the different positions. We've got to just keep moving here. I hope you're following along. When it comes to the Sabbath, as we've just done, people come to all kinds of conclusions. I want to look at four of them. They want to understand what God's will is, just as we do. And some of them miss it totally, and others try to get closer. And there are four that I want to focus in on this morning. The first one, the first position with regards to the Sabbath, is the Seventh-day Adventists. Every one of us have heard of Seventh-day Adventists, right? If you haven't heard of the church, you've no doubt heard of their hospitals. In fact, I believe one of their key people said that it's a sad thing when people know more about us, not for our faith, but for the health care services that we give. Well, this is a Protestant denomination. It was started in 1863 by a woman named Ellen White. She is somewhat of a prophetess uh, in their group. And it's a group that is uh, focused in on two things. The Sabbath being on the seventh day, which is Saturday. So seventh day, Sabbath. Adventist is a, what I would say probably a far too overwhelming focus on the second advent or the second coming of Christ. So they've got a big focus on eschatology and a big focus on the law. And so Seventh-day Adventists. How many of you have ever been in a Seventh-day Adventist hospital? Okay. Pat DeSalvo, will you ever get a pork chop at a Seventh-day Adventist hospital? You do get it if you're a patient. Really, I should go over there and cook up some food. They don't want to serve pork because they hold to the dietary ideas of the, of the uh, law, and they do so with the Sabbath. And so they believe the Sabbath and all its regulations are still in full order today. You celebrate on sand, a Saturday, and you do it just like the Israelites did. Nothing has changed. Seems not to be the sense as we look at Scripture. And so I'm going to tell you, I don't hold to the Seventh-day Adventist position. If I did, I wouldn't be here. Okay. The second thing that we need to understand is that there's another position, and that's called the Sunday Sabbath. The Sunday Sabbath. And these are people who hold to a modified view of the Seventh-day Adventist position with regards only to the Sabbath, of course, and that the Sabbath and its regulations are still in order. They're still going on. But what changed was it moved from Saturday to Sunday. Now, this guy's gotten already enough press in the last couple weeks but the most prominent individual who holds to a Sunday Sabbath that the only thing that has changed is Saturday to Sunday is the Kathy family of Chick-fil-A. Okay, so how many of you have ever wanted to get a chicken sandwich on a Sunday and you're all excited and you go into Chick-fil-A and the door's locked? And there's a sign and it says, hey, we are taking off this day. And he's been interviewed over and over again. And as a Southern Baptist, he holds to an idea that's very foreign to the Southern Baptist as a whole. But he holds to a very minority opinion that the Sabbath is still there with all its regulations, all of its rules, all of its order. Except it moved from Saturday because of Christ's resurrection to Sunday. And so no work. The Kathy family would say no entertainment. The Kathy family would say no TV, no radio, no conversation that would involve anything of a worldly perspective. I'm not bad-mouthing them. I'm just telling you what the position is. And they've looked at the Scriptures, and by their conscience, that is what they've done. And I applaud them for standing to that conviction, just as Eric Little did. Stonewall Jackson held to this position. Stonewall Jackson would stay in the fort and pray if Robert E. Lee asked him on a Sunday to go and fight a battle. He'd say, I quit. If you can't give me the Sunday, then I quit. And he would sit back at his room, no matter what the battle's doing, and he would come back at sundown of the Sabbath, and he would resume his rule over his troops. He would make sure that when he mailed an item, that it would not have the opportunity to be traveling on the Sabbath because what he then has done by mailing that envelope to his wife that might be passed by Pony Express, if you will, um, from place to place, he would say, if that meant that I allowed someone else to work, then I defiled the Sabbath and I wouldn't do it. If you were sitting at Stonewall Jackson's table and you brought up something with regards to politics, worldly affairs, or anything that did not have to do with the Sunday morning message and the worship of God, he would ask you to leave the home. Sunday Sabbath, okay? 
Then the third one is what I call non-observance. Non-observance. And so non-observance is the position, first of all, of all unbelievers. They know there's the Sabbath, and you've got neighbors that do that. I've got neighbors that do that. And the neighbors, each and every week, what they do is they say, hey, Sunday's my day. It's for me. I can do whatever I want. If I want to wash my car, I'm going to wash my car. If I'm going to work, I'm going to work. If I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I want because that is what I have. I have no intention of worshiping or praising the name of God. I have no intention of ordering my life in that way, so I'm not going to do it in that way. And so we have non-observance. So that's the unbeliever. But can I tell you there's non-observance with regards to the believer as well? And here's the line of thinking. The line of thinking is I am free in Christ. I'm no longer bound by the law, and I have freedom. So if I want to go to church, I'll go to church. If I don't want to go to church, I won't go to church. I'm free in Christ. I can do what I want. God doesn't command me to do that. So if I feel like going, I'll go. If I don't, I won't. Can I tell you that that's not based on any theological understanding but it's simply based, and you can get offended by this, and it's selfishness. It's selfishness to reorder the, the day of the Lord and say, well, I'm not going to observe any day because the Lord hasn't said that because the Bible's chalked full of what God's will is for us as his people to gather together and worship the name of Christ, and we'll get to that. And so we have all these different views, and you say, well, Tim, what is your, what's your view? As I study the scriptures and understand it, and I agree with what many of the reformers would say, as well as many evangelicals today, is that God's will for the Sabbath is participation, a weekly participation in the Lord's day. A weekly participation in the Lord's day. In, all, in light of all of Scripture, it seems as if the Sabbath was reordered because of the work of Christ, but the principle remains. There's a pattern. And the pattern is not because of the law of Moses, per se, but the pattern of New Testament Christians who gathered together on the day of the resurrection to worship and praise the name of Jesus. Do you have to do that? I want you to hear this with all of my heart. No, you don't have to do it. There's no law that says you have to be here at church. You can all leave now. Okay? If you, if you weren't here today, as long as you're not sinning, meaning you're not doing something that's against God's will, known, revealed will. You're not sinning by not being here. Your elders can't say to you, oh, you missed church, we're going to put you under church discipline because you missed a Sunday. But the Bible in the New Testament is filled with do not forsake assembling together as some are in the habit of doing being involved in close community, worshiping the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it's not a rule, but can I tell you something? If the rule was given by God for them to do and they did it, how much more should we who were dead and brought, life, brought back to life in Christ, who now no longer will taste the flames of hell, but now receive eternal glory and power, who with our own mouths say that he is our leader, he is our king, he is our God. What in the world on Sundays could take precedent over worshiping that God? Now, does that mean that if you got to work once in a while, that that happens? Sure, it's going to happen that your kids are sick, you're going to miss. Sure, it's not a rule. But it should be a priority. And what does a priority look like? I don't know, but I'll tell you. It's like immodesty. I'll tell you when I see it. It's my job to tell you that. It's your job to tell me that. We need to help one another to know that so that we do not forsake assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. That means we're doing it. And what Hebrews says is you're going to lose your faith in the sense of you're going to lose your confidence, your assurance, if you're not spending time with Christians. If you're not engaged with them, if you're not involved, and this is, let me just say this, I'm running out of time, but Albert Moeller says this. I love Albert Moeller. He's the president of Southern Seminary in Kentucky. He says, as I confront the fourth commandment, I am not convicted about Sabbath keeping, but about the Lord's days, the Lord's day breaking. Sunday is the day that the church has declared from its conception as a day of holy worship. It is not mere ceremony, but communion. Therefore, Christians should see Sunday as a day with great anticipation and longing. If they must miss, 
They should long to get back there as soon as possible. It should never be an imposition. It is to be our confidence that if we can only survive the week and arrive on the Lord's day, there we will find paradise with God's people. He goes on, he says, we can survive, we can survive imperial oppression. We can survive the drudgery of what seems to be meaningless labor. We can survive persecution and trial, sickness and even death. If only we can arrive at the Lord's day to be with God's people. Do we long for that? Can I tell you, I've been convicted to the core that there are seasons in my life where I can totally see not going to church, and it's my job to boot, to be here to do other things. Only if I had an extra day. Only if I didn't have to go and be a part of that. Only if I could just have a morning to myself. And, Al, and Albert Moeller tells us that our, our walks would be stronger, our lights would be brighter, our witness would be bolder if we had a longing to put away things so that we might be a part of worshiping the Lord. Is it the law? Nope. But brothers and sisters, we worship a God who saved us. And he deserves a lot more than many times I give him. So what do we do? We've got to apply this principle. I've got to close this out. Give me three minutes on this, and then we're going to close it out and go to communion. How do we apply it? What are we to do? You're not bound. Sunday is not the Sabbath. There's, there's really no way that you're able to do that in light of all of Scripture. But Sunday is a special day. It's a day that needs to be dedicated to the Lord. Again, not because of the law, but because of the pattern of what our fathers and mothers in the faith have done. But I might add... If you call yourself, I can't tell attenders what to do, but if you call yourself a committed member of this church, then you have made a committed decision to assemble when the people assemble. And this church, whether right or wrong, has determined that it's going to follow the practice, and it was long before Tim came into existence. Uh, Jim Quist, where are you? We never worshiped on Saturday or any other day. Sunday's been the day for Village Bible Church in its 40 years of existence. And when you commit to being a member of this church, you commit to making the assembly, not to any church. You can't say, well, I watched Joel Osteen on TV. That was my church this morning. You did not commit to Joel Osteen. You committed to the brothers and sisters that are committed to you. And the reason why your involvement is so important isn't because of the law, but can I just tell you, I need you. I need you. I can't go without another week without brothers and sisters in Christ coming around me and saying, Tim, fight the good fight. Tim, keep the faith. Tim, run the race. And you need me because we're a body, and if you're not here, we're amputees. And we need one another, and we got to help one another. And, we gotta, and so when you're gone, yeah, and maybe it's okay once or, or twice, but at some point we're going to say, man, I, I lost a finger, and I don't know where it went. I could really use that finger right now. Where'd it go? And so brothers and sisters who have put themselves by their own free choice to be members of this church, I want to tell you, you've committed more than you would ever think if you look at the scriptures and what it meant to be a part of a body of Christ. And so how do we apply it? Number one, make a day a day of rest. Resting in what? Number one, resting in your salvation. Rest in your salvation. You no longer have to work for your salvation. You no longer have to work for God to be pleased with you. But God gave you the right to become children of God. He loves you. He cares for you. He's committed to you. Now rest in that. Rest in it. Don't strive. Stop your toiling and rest in that. The idea is not relaxation and recreation. It's foreign to Scripture, that kind of understanding of rest. But rest is a ceasing from everyday tasks to give God the glory that is due His name. Number two, it involves our sanctification. It is the Lord's day where we can rest. Think about this. We've been given a great gift by our country. I know there are people that have to work on Sundays on regular times. We have doctors. We have policemen. We have people that by necessity, and the New Testament, if you study it, gives the opportunity for works of necessity to take place even in the day where there was a law. So there's a redeeming value to that here. 
But the idea of sanctification is it's a day for us to take inventory of where we're at. Can I tell you, it's not that people aren't at church. Our, 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 our uh, average attendance is about 60 to 65% of our body is here on a Sunday morning. Okay? That's, that's where it's at. You can call that a priority or not. I'll leave that up to you. Um, but here's the thing. Many of us who are here are already thinking about what I'm going to do once I get out of here. Instead of stopping and pausing and asking, God, what will you have of me today? Where can I serve? Who can I love? What can I do different this week so I don't fall into the same sin I did last week? No. Can I tell you something? One of the biggest reasons why I hear that our second service isn't as full as this one is because September is coming, and that means the Bears play at 12. Let me tell you something. Because of us moving to two services, I'm half the Bears fan I used to be. Why? Because number one, I'm too cheap to buy a DVR. And number two, I just don't get home in time. Do I love the Bears? I love the Bears. But I'll tell you, God has called me to a priority. He hasn't called you maybe to that, but can I ask you the question, if you're worried more about what you're going to do after here than law or not, you're missing out on what God has given you as a gift. Number three, we need to understand that it's a day of service. It's a day of service. Can I tell you, if you look at the New Testament, the Sabbath day was Jesus' busiest day. Did you know that? And so as a pastor, I hear over and over again, why do we do all these programs? Why do we do all these things? Because Jesus did. Jesus worked from the beginning of the morning to the end of the night, just simply ministering, whether it was teaching or healing or caring. He served and he served and he served. Now, we can do dumb things and, and be involved in dumb things and just make a program of doing things. I totally agree with that. But the reason why we went back to adding something on Sunday night is because we in our culture have a day that has been set apart by our government that not many people work, not many people do things. And we say it's not good enough for us just to have an hour and a half together. Let's make it more of the day. And so I'll tell you, we went to a New Testament understanding. Let's share a meal every Sunday. And can I tell you, I've heard more feedback from people. I don't want to serve those people on Sunday. That's garbage. The people of God should gather on the resurrection day, share a meal, love one another, care for one another, be taught God's word, teach children God's word. And can I tell you, every year, every stinking year, we labor to find people to serve. Why? Because Sunday is not a day set apart unto the Lord. But it's a day, once I get done here, I can move on to what I want to do. I'll leave you that. You can hate me for it, and that's fine. I hate myself, so it's all good. Let me close with this. You ask the question, are there things that we can and can't do? Let me end with this confession. As I've studied this commandment, in light of what Christ has said, Tim, how pale how weak, how compromising and conflicted are your thoughts of the Lord's day. To a sinner, from a sinner to sinners, I offer you no tables or lists of do's and don'ts. But I will say, Sunday is not the Sabbath, but it's central to the Christian's life. It's distinct from all other days, so Tim set it apart for worship. Tim, are there things that you can't do on the Lord's day? Certainly there are. Anything, Tim, that would detract you from worship shouldn't be done. Anything, Tim, that would rob the Lord's day as a priority of worship shouldn't be done. Anything that would have Tim hoping that I can get done sooner so I can get on with the rest of my day seems totally unbiblical and unfitting for a Christian. For you, Tim, who has been brought back from death to life. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we are going to enter into a time that was patterned by the New Testament church, that was patterned by your own teaching, where we stop and we remember what you did. Lord, we don't have time this morning, and it's sad to say that, but we don't have time this morning to instruct all that you did with regards to communion. And so, Lord, I just want to say thank you for your sacrifice. And as we come to this point, that we would take some inventory this morning of who we are and what we're all about. 
and not look to the left or to the right before we first look at ourselves and remember what you've done and ask the question in light of this indescribable gift, what is my life to look like? Lord, lead us to that. We thank you for you giving your all, and now, Lord, we recognize that we too are to give our all, even in the freedom that you've given us to worship and proclaim your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.